very quickly, I want to remind you of a couple of things that I don't want you to ever forget. And, and one is the cost of freedom. Freedom isn't free. And, and my dad, uh, I, I was missing my dad this weekend. I was kind of, uh, kind of down a little bit thinking about dad. Cause every time I come to the 4th of July, I remember my dad's service on Guadalcanal. I remember how dad came to Christ. It was in a foxhole when he's being bombed by the Japanese. Um, I just, I miss dad this weekend. And, and when, whenever I hear the national anthem, um, yeah, I'm not going to salute, but I'm gonna put my hand over my heart and, and it irritates me when people talk during the national anthem. Um, because that means you've, you've forgotten that somebody, somebody died so that you could have the freedom to be in this country. And I know our freedoms are shrinking, but, but don't you dare around me. Don't you dare talk during the national anthem because I respect our flag. I respect our country and I respect the lives of those who were lost so that we could live in a free country. And, and I just decided to, to look up some stuff. Uh, it's funny. I used this movie nine years ago and Jeff didn't remember this. This is funny. Because nine years ago, Jeff said to me, everybody under the age of 25, every man under the age of 25, every young man needs to watch this movie, the first hour of this movie, to remember the cost of war. And so I, I actually took that out. I, I you know, went back and redid some things in my sermon, and, and uh, I took that out. And then we were sitting out here for prayer time on Tuesday, and I told Jeff, he said, I'm so glad you're doing um, Saving Private Ryan. He said, every young man under 25 needs to watch the first hour of this movie. And I just kind of grinned, and I told Janie about it, and she laughed. And, and, and it's true because I think we've forgotten um, those who are in the military, the, the, I've talked to some of the guys in our church that have been in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they have a hard time talking about the things that they've seen. And I think we take for granted the lives that purchased our freedom. So I just looked up. I looked up how many people we uh, died fighting in World War II. All right, here it is. 295,000 military deaths over a four-year period of World War II. So just to give you some perspective, I just looked up populations around here. That is the entire population of Palestine, uh, Corsicana, Athens, Jacksonville, Tyler, Longview, Henderson, Rusk, and Ennis combined. So imagine if all of those cities were wiped out. That's how many people we lost in four years of World War II. Now, just by comparison, I did the first four years of the Iraq War. And I found out that we lost 2,500 military personnel in the Iraq war. And then I went back and I looked how many have we lost to date. We've lost 4,486 in the Iraqi war, 4,486. We've lost 2,345 in the Afghanistan war. And, and I think a single life is something that we need to remember. But can you imagine if, if the number were 100 times that? See, I, I, I looked at, uh, up at our totals compared to other countries. 295,000 was the 15th highest total of military deaths of everybody who fought in World War II. Anybody know which country suffered the greatest loss? Russia. 25.5 million people died. Russians died in World War II. 16 million of them were civilians. That is equivalent to the entire population of the state of Texas. War is very costly. Freedom is very costly. Now, the Bible tells us how wars start, and the Bible says that it's usually selfishness and pride, and it comes from James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What is causing the quarrel and fights among you? 
Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you, ha- uh, what you want because you don't ask God for it. Now, my question is, do you think Hitler asked God for world dominance? I mean, he may have, but it's not the God we're talking to, right? That's what he wanted was world dominance. He didn't have world dominance, so he decided to brainwash a bunch of people. They followed him, and he tried to kill millions of people. He did kill millions of people. Um, Mussolini, the emperor of Japan, all of them, they, they wanted something that they did not have, and so they went to war to fight for it. And we eventually were pulled into that war. But I want you to think about this. Whenever a war starts, it almost always can be traced to selfishness or pride. When there's a battle between two nations, when there's a battle between two businesses, when there's a battle between an employer and an employee, or even a husband and wife, or even a a parent or a child, usually one or both of the parties is exhibiting selfishness or pride. Right? Make sense? I want what I want. You want what you want. We have conflict because what you want isn't what I want, and I want what I... Right? Selfishness and pride. And war is nothing new. During recorded history, over 5,500 years of recorded history, there have been 14,531 wars. That's an average of about 2.6 wars per year that there have been humans on the planet. So when Jesus said there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars, Jesus knew what he was talking about because we lived up in a messed up world, right? So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, the scripture tells us how to respond in Romans 12, 18. It says, as much as possible, and that's on your listening guide there if you're following along on uh, version. circle that phrase, as much as is possible, because this is the key. As much as is possible, live in peace with everyone. Are there some people who refuse to live at peace with you individually? Yes or no? Yes. Are there some nations that refuse to live at peace with the United States? Yes. If it is possible, this verse implies that there's sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with someone else. And, and I'll just tell you that if someone comes into my house, we're not going to have peace. Uninvited. Not like, you know, open the door. Um, yesterday we were at the, at the fireworks and there was somebody at the end of the little soccer field and they were shooting off fireworks. And, and you know, I kept saying... Where's Ricky? Where's Officer Baker? I know you're on the other side. You couldn't see it. But all these fireworks were going off. And then these little whistler things started flying towards us. And Janie's sitting next to me and I said, I said, baby, if one of those hits one of y'all, I am dragging whoever it was to the police. We're not going to have peace because it just makes me crazy when people do that stuff in crowds. I'm not going to have peace with people who hurt, who hurt my family. You break in and try to, to hurt my family, we're, we're not going to have peace. There's sometimes that peace is not an option. And when evil men attempt to conquer innocent folks, then war is actually the lesser of two evils. You get that? We cannot sit by when evil attacks. Now, the, the thing you got to remember is war actually reveals what's inside of a person. Got a picture here, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Did I put him up there? No, I put his quote up there. Here's what he said. He's a hero of the Battle of Gettysburg. (laughs) So it's been around a while. War makes bad men worse and good men better. So let me give you some examples from World War II. Um, The the most feared plane, fighter plane, in World War II was the Japanese Zero. Because they were very, very fast. They were very agile. But in order to achieve that agility, they were made of paper-thin aluminum. And their gas tanks were not self-sealing. 
So even though the Allied planes, the British and American planes, were were slower, we could take a lot of damage because we had fortified uh, planes and we had self-sealing gas tanks. And so even though they would fight, we would eventually, we could take tremendous amount of damage for our pilots and they could still fly and we could still turn the Japanese Zeros into fireballs, which is what people wanted to do. And something else we learned about the Japanese, most of the Japanese Zero fighter pilots were not given um, parachutes. You know why? Here's what they said. Such luxuries were thought to be a disgrace to the warrior code of conduct. Who the heck made up the warrior code of conduct? It wasn't the warriors. I'm jumping in a plane. I'm saying fortify that sucker. Protect the gas tank. Give me a parachute. (laughs) I've, I've never understood, never understood suicide bombers. What I wish is that Osama bin Laden had been the first suicide bomber. See, I want to follow, I want to follow leaders who do things, not leaders who say you have a code of conduct that I'm not going to follow. Right. Let's, let's get those guys to be the suicide bombers and we'll get rid of a lot of this stuff. The ISIS. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got some good plans. Disregard for individuals was also characteristic of the Soviet Union, even though they lost so many people. Here's what their commander said to Dwight Eisenhower. They said, uh, when they were talking about clearing minefields, they said, our infantry attacks exactly as if the minefields were not there. Again, Colonel, you lead the way disregard for human life. Here's the other thing he said to Eisenhower. This blew my mind. He said, uh, why do you care about men the Germans have captured? They have surrendered and cannot fight anymore. In other words, once a Russian soldier was captured, he was no longer of use to the motherland. Disregard for human life. You see what I'm saying when I say war makes bad men worse and, and good men better? It reveals what's on the inside of you, the way you view human life is revealed when you go to war. So I want you to remember the cost, tremendous cost to be free. Don't ever forget it. Second, remember the stories of freedom. Everybody has a story. And when we mess up is when we forget that there are stories. Uh, it's easy for me to, to remember stories because in dad's probably last 15 years, I heard the same stories every time I saw dad. We'd go on a vacation and dad would start reminiscing about stuff. First time Janie, uh, Caleb was, was actually, Janie was pregnant with Caleb the first time that dad opened up to me. I still remember we were on a ferry boat going from, um, uh, from Canada to Vancouver Island from the mainland to Vancouver Island. And Janie was sick, and so she's almost falling asleep over there. Mom's falling asleep. And Dad started telling me all of these stories about Guadalcanal. I'd never heard them. I was 30 years old, and I'd never heard the stories that my daddy told me. And, and they're very vivid in my memory to this day. And we even got some telling some stories on video. And if I could have, if I'd have had enough money, I would have flown Dad to Guadalcanal. Because he was, he was in the construction battalion. Dad wasn't even supposed to be in combat but he lost a lot of friends. He lost a lot of um, leaders. And, and he even talked about, well, I won't even get into that. But I have lots of stories. It's very, very personal to me because my dad told me uh, all this stuff. And, and what I want you to realize is 
is every person who gave their life has a story, and we need to learn some of those stories and remember them. Now, before they found Private Ryan, now this is, this is like I said, it's fictional, but it's based on things that actually happened. He was just a name, and nobody could believe we would, as a country, send folks to, to uh, rescue this one young man because people were going to die trying to rescue him. But do you understand it's the value we have on a human life and actually carrying on the name of that family? If you are the parent of three or four young men who have have given their lives and you got one left, wouldn't you want the country to move heaven and earth to bring that one young son home? It's a different view of life and it's one of the things that made our country great. Now in this uh, scene, it's kind of a, kind of a funny scene um, when he's reminiscing something. He cannot remember the faces of his brothers and Tom Hanks' character says you have to put it in context and, and you'll watch and then we'll talk about that. I can't see my brother's faces. I've been trying, and I, and I can't see their faces at all. Has that ever happened? you got to think of a context. What does that mean? Well, you don't just think about their faces. Think about something specific. Something you've done together. I don't want to think of home. I, I think of something specific. I think of my, my hammock in the backyard. My wife pruning the rose bushes and a pair of my old work gloves. This one night, two of my brothers came and woke me up in the middle of the night. They said they had a surprise for me. So they took me to the barn up into the loft, and there was my oldest brother, Dan, with Alice, <laughs> Alice Jardine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, picture a girl who just took a nosedive from the ugly tree and hit every branch coming down. <laughs> and Dan's got her shirt off. He's working on his bra and he's trying to get it off. And all of a sudden, Sean just screams out, Danny, you're a young man. Don't do it. <laughs> And so Alice Jardine hears this and she screams and she jumps up and she tries to get running out of the barn, but she's still got this shirt over her head. She goes running right into the wall and knocks herself out. So now Dan is just so mad at us. He, he, he starts coming after us. But, but at the same time, Alice is over there unconscious. He's got to wake, wake her up. So he grabs her by a leg and he's, dra- he's dragging her. At the same time, he picks up a shovel and he's going after Sean. And Sean's saying, what are you trying to hit me for? I just did you a favor. <laughs> and so this makes Dan more angry. He tries to swing this thing. He loses the shovel, goes out of his grasp, it hits a kerosene lantern. The thing explodes. The whole barn almost goes up because of this thing. Uh. That was it. That was the last... That was Dan went off to basic the next day. That was the last night the four of us were together. Years ago. You see what he said, put it in context, because every, every life has a story. So I've got a picture of Arlington National Cemetery, and the soldier, for, for him, this one is very, very real. It's very personal. Um, I remember when my dad went to uh, 
the World War II wall and, and looked up names, and he saw names that were on there. And people go to the Vietnam uh, War Memorial, and, and they, they find the one that's personal to them. It, war um, removes people from us, and they all have a story. And I just want to tell you two quick little stories. One is about Roger Young. On July 31st, 1943, he was pinned down. This, uh, go ahead and show that next picture. Um, there he is. Doesn't look like a warrior, does he? Doesn't look like a hero, does he? Well, he uh, and his patrol were pinned down by uh, machine gunners on the Solomon Islands. And this ambush had already killed four soldiers. And since there was virtually no hope of rescue, it appeared that the rest of the patrol would just be shot. It, it, you know, it, would, it was only a matter of time. So Young, who had recently uh, requested a demotion to private because he was losing his hearing, he decided that he was going to crawl forward and he was going to take out the machine gun nest. And his, his captain uh, grabbed hold of him and, and yelled at him to stay where he was. And he jerked free from the captain. And he, as he's going forward, the, the machine gun fire is so withering that it almost cuts off his legs, but he refuses to be stopped. He crawls forward, finds this little depression in the ground that protects him from the machine gun fire. With his last ounce of strength, he pulls the pin on a grenade, gets up to throw it. Right as he lets go of the grenade, machine gun fire hits him in the face, killing him immediately. And God had his hand on that grenade because it landed right in the middle of the nest and exploded and killed all the enemy. And his troop was saved. His patrol was saved. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? There's another story I read about um, submarine skipper Howard Gilmore. He was on routine patrol in the South Pacific, and their submarine had accidentally rammed into a Japanese ship. And so they were on the surface, and uh, he was in the conning tower, and two men had already been killed, and then he was critically injured. And he knew he couldn't get back to the hatch to get down below, so he did the only thing that he could think of to do. He told the the submarine to dive, and, and his... his uh, his men were, were protesting loudly, and he said, Dive. So he dies on the surface and saves 69 men in the submarine. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Now, both of these guys received the Congressional, Congressional Medal of Honor, which is the highest military honor, and the criteria are very, very strict. Here it is. The act in question must be reported by at least two eyewitnesses, distinguishable above other acts of gallantry, and involve the risk of one's own life. Now, these guys didn't get to, to celebrate. Their families were awarded their, uh, their medals. But, but I thought this was kind of cool. Because according to a, a military tradition, every officer, generals included, must rise and salute any winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor. The salute shows the endearing respect for the man, the medal, and the deed. Now... What I want to ask you is why do we respect such heroism? Um, I, think it's, I think it's moving to read stories of these guys. But I, I think it's because God created us in his image. And we understand that when someone gives their life, it is the highest honor. They are, they are literally sacrificing themselves for you. And so we respect those types of, of uh, individuals, but I think it also is a reflection of God's own son offering his life on a cross. And Jesus said it this way in John fifteen thirteen. he said, the greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. And, and you know, there, there's no monetary value we can put on the gallons of blood that were shed so that we might be free. Money can't buy what we have today and we're taking it for granted. The greatest danger of a free nation is to forget the cost 
of that freedom. And the greatest danger for churches is to forget that our freedom from our sins costs God his son. We cannot forget that stuff. Well, so the third thing I want you to remember is the cause of freedom. And uh, you're going to see this right at the end of the movie when, when Private Ryan never forgot the sacrifices that people made for him. steadfast dedication even after he was informed of the tragic loss your family has suffered in this great campaign to rid the world of tyranny and oppression I take great pleasure in joining the Secretary of War the men and women of the United States Army and the citizens of a grateful nation in wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side nothing not even the safe return of a beloved son can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have suffered great loss in this tragic war. But I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln. George very sincerely and respectfully. George C. Marshall, General Chief of Staff. Every day, I 
think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. last 10 years of his life, um, had some back and hip problems. He couldn't stand up straight, but anytime we would go to a CB reunion and you would hear the star spangled banner or they would take a picture, my dad would slowly raise up and, and stand at attention, uh, cause he loved his country. And, and I think dad would have gone again to protect his family in the future. And every year on the 4th of July, I think, you know, I am so grateful for our freedom. I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that my dad served the country. But at the same time, I always think that even free men and women die. So it can't be just about physical freedom, right? There's got to be more to this life than just physical freedom. And there is. There's spiritual freedom. Um, part of the reason that every time we go to a funeral, we are upset and we wonder why people die is because God planted something in our hearts. I just want to read you two verses real fast as we finish up. One is Ecclesiastes 3.11. It says, God has planted eternity in the human heart. The reason we think that death is unnatural is it is unnatural. God designed our souls to live forever in a place called heaven, but you have to choose to follow him. The other verse is 2 Corinthians 5.1, and I use these a lot of times at, at funerals. It says, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not human hands. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a tent forever. I want to live in my permanent home. And the Bible says that God has prepared one for us. 
But the only people who get there are the ones who are spiritually free. And you are not good enough. None of us is good enough to be spiritually free on our our own. It requires a perfect sacrifice that's Jesus Christ. And so God doesn't just offer you the opportunity of a lifetime. God offers you the opportunity beyond this lifetime. And uh, I want you to remember the cause of spiritual freedom and the consequences of spiritual freedom live on after you die. And it's why I've invested my life in this church. Because what we're doing every week matters. God, um, I was thinking about last night. And I was thinking about how many people. There's usually nine or 10,000 people at the fireworks show here in Palestine. And if national averages hold true... If there's 10,000, 9,000 of those people are in spiritual bondage. And the Bible says, how can they ever know about freedom unless someone tells them? God has made it possible so that you could go to heaven. And if you're going to heaven, the next question is, how many people are you taking with you? Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Physical freedom is awesome. Spiritual freedom is even better. And we have to be a church that constantly comes back and says, we will give up our lives so that others can hear about Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, change us from the inside out and make this church a life-saving station where we will do anything to make sure that that as many people as, as possible are in the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.